I see my subconscious in external space. This is the best way to, to describe it. I basically live in virtual reality, my own set of virtual reality. So what you would see in the back of your brain, I see externally. Hi, it's Runchix. The following is our conversation with Richard Turner, who is an amazing card magician and just an extraordinary human being. It is his second time on the show. This episode is a trimmed down version of a four hour call we had with Richard earlier this year. And I'm sure we'll bring out more episodes as there's just so much to learn from him. And there aren't many other people in the whole world who have as many crazy, entertaining, real life stories to tell. Now, I find Richard's dedication to his art and his relentless energy really inspiring it's always a pleasure to talk to him so i hope you enjoy this conversation with the fantastic richard turner episode number 52 of the wrenchix podcast which is richard's favorite number richard such a pleasure to have you on for a second time on the show this is episode 52 um it was meant to be your episode it's a special number for you and uh, such a pleasure yeah, 52 is my favorite number because 52 has brought me in a lot of dollars and a lot of uh, fun because it's the number of a deck, full deck. Now, I was born in the year of the full deck, which is a deck with jokers, 54, but uh, 52 is the number I grew up with. And even when I work out, you, we do everything in sets of 52 reps, not 10 reps like these wimps out there do. You, <laughs> you work out with me in sets of 52. And then when I turned 52, I said, okay, most people start going down when they get older. I'm going the other direction. So I threw in the joker. So whenever they work out, if they're under 52, I said, you have to do 52 reps. You do not have the privilege of doing 54 reps until you turn 52. So I would do 54 reps. They would do the best they could to hit 52, which they never did. <laughs> I heard you were in Russia recently. And yes. for those who don't know, perhaps people listening to this 20 years in the future, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now and Russia is closed as far as I know. And you're in Texas. How did that happen? How did you get to Russia? Well, first I was invited to be on a show called, in English it translates to Superhuman Incredible People. How's that for a title? Superhuman Incredible People. It's a uh, takeoff from a show that's in China called Brain. And it's about people with unusual brains uh, on a level that they can do things that are, in their words, when they refer to me, one of a kind. You're one of a kind in the world. Anyway, so um, they wanted me on this show, and they wanted me very badly on this show. And so they sent an invitation to the Russian consulate saying so we want Richard Turner on the show, and we were giving him an invitation to come in. The Russian consul said, no invitation. Russia borders closed. Turner, no go. And, <laughs> I, and now when I would talk to him, that's what they'd say to me. And I'd say, but this is, uh, I'm being invited by them. So no, no visa. And so then Russia won, which is the biggest network in Russia. Then they went up the ladder to the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and re-approached the Russian consulate. And they said, sorry, no visa. And then they went, want to step up the ladder again to the Ministry of External Affairs. And they said, again, no visa for Turner. 
And finally, they went all the way up to President Putin's deputy prime minister. And they said, it'll be ready for you in 30 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and, there, and then when I uh, went over to Russia, you know, when the jump off was in Istanbul, in, in Moscow, and I got there, I don't think you're going to, you're going to be able to go any further. And I said, we had a number all set. And it was the, the deputy prime minister of Russia. And the guy comes back to who the heck are you that you're being escorted in by someone on such a high level? And, uh, and they just were very nice at that point. And, uh, and then actually when I got to the terminal, uh, the, which was a, the final, final uh, drop off, the guy goes, hey, well, first he says, you know, uh, well, says we're going to let you in, but, you know, no one's allowed in Russia. And, and then also he goes, hey, you're Richard Turner. I saw you in Dell. Hey, I'll let him pass. So that was just kind of <laughs> random of all, of all things to have happen. But that's how I got in. And the show was just amazing. The people on the show, I, they're, they're beyond kind, beyond, beyond. They're beyond description. One guy who could calculate things in the five, six, seven, eight digits out, things that add up into the billions. And, uh, and you know, he was just amazing. And, uh, but my part, the reason why I was invited is because mo your audience probably knows I have no sight. I have, uh, my vision started going south when I was nine years old. And it, it was a generated, uh, slow degeneration of the retina. Uh, slowly, it started with the macula, which is the center that I had worked its way out till it uh, encompassed my whole field of vision. Uh, it was being basically X'd out. But my condition is called Charles Bonnet syndrome. It's French. It was first documented in 1760 by Charles Bonnet. And it's a very rare condition. And up, up until 1990, there were only six documented cases. And an author named Dr. Oliver Sachs, he's a best-selling author, and he unfortunately passed away about two years ago or three years ago. But he's probably done more studies on it. And it's a condition where a person who has lost their sights, and uh, the most of the other cases, they're, they're just sporadic. Uh, like one guy described as uh, pixie dust, uh, sprinkling in and and so on and and I've been the keynote speaker and been with all the top eye surgeons in the United States and they uh, I'm the most extreme case of CBS they've ever come across and in one and I've only met one and I've only I'm only aware of two two altogether including the one I met. <clears throat> And the other one, it was a Dr. Uh, Stephen Bloom, who was the heads up the eye surgery uh, department. Uh, he has uh, uh, 17 uh, eye surgeons that work under and for him. And he has one case, and that person's suicidal because he freaks out at the, what we just put it in a negative term, hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And uh, But my, in my case, I see... Uh, uh, my subconscious in external space this is the best way to, to describe it. I basically live in virtual reality, my own set of virtual reality. So what you would see in the back of your brain, I see externally, not in my brain, imagine it like when you're dreaming or sleeping, but I'm actually seeing what's here in front of me. 
And I live in two basic spectrums, the blue spectrum and the red spectrum. And I've actually been studied by two Harvard scientists, two Harvard scientists, one of the neuroscientists, Dr. Ogus, uh, kind of explained how my haptic and tactile neural network, that's the part of the brain that relates to touch, has bullied its way into my visual network, which in the brain is still fully intact, but the optic, but the, the retina is gone. So there's no vision can go in, but yet because of this CBS is the acronym for Charbonnet syndrome, Charles Bonnet syndrome. Um, I still am seeing uh, all the, all these images. Like I said, I have the blue spectrum is the uh, right brain artistic and this random strokes of all different shades of royal blue, blue, turquoise blue, blue, green, emerald green, light green on down the, on down the line, and they're just random like brush strokes of, of a paintbrush. And then in that will be just any subconscious image. You can imagine it's all floating around, but all the images are in two dimension, but they're layered three dimensionally. So just picture yourself underwater in a swimming pool with the light spectrum coming down, breaking down all the different colors of the light spectrum. And then in that pool is just, instead of fish everywhere, all different colors and shapes, just m images of any random thing, horses, motorcycles, just anything you can imagine, all floating around in there forward and they're close and they're distant. That's why I say they're, they're two dimensional, but they're layered three dimensionally. Mm -hmm. And I can, that's the blue spectrum. The red spectrum is all geometric, which there, as Dr. Over says, the lower part of the brain. And it's the one that relates to lines and other things. It's the left brain, analytical, uh, math type related part of the brain. And, uh, and that's all geometric shapes. My, the basic uh, spectrum, uh, the images that I see is like if you just picture a, uh, a house that has the bricks laid and then uh, the concrete uh, is a maroon, which is one of my favorite colors there. And then the bricks are red. And then, and so it's, that's the basic uh, layout is like bricks everywhere. And then, or it's like a, a, a screen door grid where it's perfect squares, except for a lot bigger than a screen door, it's teeny weeny squares. And then in the, each of those are just circles and squares and just all these different geometric shapes. And then in the geometric shapes are again, any random mental image that's in my subconscious. So I said all that to say that um, Dr. Over August describes how my two networks, the visual network and the tactile, the haptic network are resonating with each other. The one bullet is way into the other and those two parts of the brain have come together. And in the words of Dr. August, he said, you have one of the most developed tactile neural networks of anybody on planet Earth. That's his word, not my words. And that's one of the reasons why I have the touch that I have with the cards. And so I go to Russia to be on the show and all the people on the show are all scientists. The judges, uh, the hosts and the judges are scientists. And the person that sat at my table on my right, Velimi, I don't quite say his name quite right. He was the head of the neuroscience department at Moscow University. On my left was a woman named Olga. And then there was a couple others. Um, and I'll send you the link so you can actually watch the episodes. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know this till I get on there. He says, 
I'm well studied. I'm, in his words, I'm a legend in the neuroscience departments throughout Russia and throughout the world. And I'm going, are you kidding me? I, I had never heard of such a thing. I had no idea that they even knew me, let alone that I'm studied and that I'm, and he's been following me for 10 years. And that's why he wanted me on the show. And he actually told the audience, he said, you know, uh, the borders to Russia are closed. And yet we have here Richard Turner. And of course, the audience ripped out and clapped her and laughing, or not laughing, you know, applause and uh, happy that I was there. And he was saying how that's how badly they wanted me on the show. So I said all that once again. Uh, so like I said, the networks come together. And uh, so on the show, I, I was demonstrating. They wanted me to talk about these parts of the brain. And, and again, like I said, we're kind of, this is kind of random talk. Uh, Dr. Ogus was saying one of the reasons that my visual network is intact is when I dream at night in, in, my, in my dreams, most blind people have no visions in their dreams. My, vision, my dreams, I, everything is perfectly clear. 20-20 vision. I don't see the colors, I don't see the shapes, and, and I see everything in full color and with audio in my dreams. And so that's another part of the reason why they know that my visual network is still fully intact. And uh, so I, when I was on there, they wanted me to show how I do certain moves with the cards. And like what I, if I cover this the last time, I apologize, but uh, like when I deal a second, uh, you know, my thumb has to push, have the touch to push over exactly 22.6 thousandths of an inch. That's the thickness of two cards. And then when it goes across the deck to take out that second card, I have five microseconds. Engage that card and take it out. It takes a thousand microseconds to, to equal one second. So I'm literally doing that less than a blink of an eye and a fraction of a blink of an eye. And so the touch to do that is one of the reasons why I have uh, three people have been working on that particular move for 30 years and still can't put it to its purpose. But um, anyway, that was just one of the, one of the things that I did. I did quite a number of things on the show. Um, oh, let's get back to uh, other areas of that. Uh, we're talking about Charles Bonnet syndrome, Charles Bonnet syndrome. And really uh, our focus is on the martial arts and using Charbonnet, and this is part of one of the reasons that um, they wanted me on the show, and uh, I don't talk about this quite as much. It's kind of hard to explain. But when I train, like I said earlier, I don't do sets of 10 or 15 or 13. I do sets of 52. And then when I turn 52, I, and I increased it to 54 reps at a time so when i do sets when i do legless i might do six decks of legless that's six sets of 54 uh, at one time that's my normal uh, amount of just warm up with my stomach which you can just multiply 54 times six and that's how many setups i just did okay and then uh so when i with the Charbonnet and with the, the ability to see my subconscious in external space, when you see people train, you'll see these weightlifters saying, come on, come on, come on, you can do it. But you know, they, they're just, all they're doing is bringing their physical into it. They're just trying to grunt it out physically. They're not combining mind and body together as a unit. 
And so what I do is when I get to the point of exertion is I will take and I will see projected in front of of me, depending on the exercise, and I have all kinds of different uh, projections that I use. I'll give you a simple one. Like when I'm doing a bench press, I will uh, see a cable connected to the bar and that cable goes across two pulleys. On the other end, I might have a, a counterweight or it might be Arnold Schwarzenegger, a big gorilla. And when I get to the point of exertion, I then transfer my focus to my muscles trying to push the weight up to the image of that weight falling or those guys pulling that cable, pulling my weight up. So I will then see them pulling the weight up. And at that point, my muscles will no longer stress as I continue to press. Hence, I never have a lactic acid buildup. And I can do tremendous amounts of repetitions. And I weigh at one, I weigh 168. Right now, I'm about 170. I put on about two pounds over my prime. But I'm headed to 67 years old, mind you. And um, But when I got my first black belt, I weighed at 168. 28 years when I, later, when I got my sixth degree black belt, uh, I weighed 168 and six ounces. And my father-in-law said, you know, if you just would have peed first, you would have broke even. Anyway, so um, uh, so I no, my point is, fifty years later, I still wear the size, same size waist waist that I had fifty years, 45, 50 years ago. Ago, it's because of being able to do all these amounts of reps. But at the same time, I also will go. I don't do it anymore, but I go to a maximum amount of weight. So I weigh 168, but I topped out at 340 on the bench press. And I, I could curl more than my body weight. There are people that can power their own, their own weight on bench and military, but not as many people can curl their weight or more than their weight. And uh, I would, I'd, I'd, I'd always kind of blow their minds of people. I'd go to the gym and they have the bench press where they have the big wheels on the 45 pound bar and the wheels, which are 45 pounds each. Mm-hmm. And I said, you mind if I snatch a warm up set? And they think I'm getting ready to do a bench press. And I stand up over there, grab the bar, and I just wrap off 10 or 20 curls. And I'm just warming up with that. And they're going, hey, you as strong as a guy, ain't you? And, uh, um, but anyway, but the, it's because of that ability to see different images, to create, to, to divert my mind in, in conjunction with the, the physical and the mind seeing an image and putting those images together, taking the stress away from my muscles because my mind is believing that it's being helped. I'll give you a few other examples. And then I'll try to remember what I told my wife. Like another example, like say you want to do a tricep, like you're doing hammers on the, on the ground. Uh, when I say hammers, I mean, you know, your hammer, but your tricep is laying flat on the ground and you're, and you're going like this. Uh, and then, so the weight's like this. So that, that's when the contraction takes place, when you're contracting the muscle. The tricep is when it's you know, straightening. Bicep, when you're curling in, can, the backside is when you're going the other direction. Uh, so what I would see when I start getting exertion is as my hand is following, falling, I had that weight is now a hammer. I am now vertical like this, and that hammer is falling, hitting the nail. And when do you have the least amount of resistance? When you're hammering a nail, it's when your hammer, when the hammer is going down, right? Because the weight of the hammer is 
pulling itself down and your hand down. When you go back up, that's when you actually have the exertion. So I will see that hammer dropping. And at that point, again, my muscles, my well, I will no longer feel the stress as my muscles continue to press. And uh, like a quadricep extension, that's where you take your legs on a bench like this and you straighten them out. And, and so when they're straight is when you're contracting the muscles on the quadricep here and down uh, is when they're, when they're relaxed. So I will see in front of me a rubber band that's six inches thick. And, but when it's, when I start out, it's all stretched out to like four inches in the center when my legs are down. And then I will see that rubber band pull up. And so it's pulling my legs up like a giant rubber band pulling them up. And so again, my muscles combining the mind in conjunction with the body together, creating these images, uh, I am able to do a tremendous amount of repetitions. And the cell, like one of the silliest ones, like when I do exercise for the forearm, I'll actually chew gum. Every time my every time my mouth closes, it pulls the fingers up as I'm doing a tricep or a forearm a curl. Anyway, so those are just some of the images and other things I can do, like I can hold my arm out straight. And I have, I've done this as demonstration for years. And up, and, uh, up until I hit 50, um, where I ended up uh, had a shoulder surgery from a fight, uh, I used to be, there was nobody's arm I did not bend. I'd do a demonstration. I'd say back, back themselves up against the wall. So there, there's, you're pinned up. There's, you have no, you, you're, you're pinned up against the wall. And I'd hold my arm out and I'd say, bend my elbow. And I'd always start off with them. And I've had 300 pound bodybuilders. And I would, I would be able to bend their arm. Here's their bicep, here's their arm. And you fold, I used to, to fold the arm up. And, and then I would do it. And then I would have them, nobody, nobody has ever bent my arm. And I'd sometimes push it. I have two people at the same time together. Two people pushing here, two people pulling here, trying to bend my arm. And, and, I'm, and I'm totally relaxed. And how am I doing that? I have an image in my mind. I see my arm as a fire hose shooting out of my arm as thousands of gallons of water just shooting out that you you're not going to bend a fire hose a three foot part of a fire hose you're not going to fold it in half when the water's shooting out so i had that, that image and i just relax and, and feel that water shooting out and nobody bends the arm so again it's combining mind and body together and uh anyway so that's um uh, that that's where the child Bonnet, uh, charles bonnet syndrome cbs has been an asset and uh, an, uh, an advantage uh, for me in my training. And then, of course, it goes on into other areas because um, I'll do the same thing when I'm uh, practicing moves with cards and people will see me. I'll be what? My mind will, I'll create, I'll see in front of me exactly what I want to do. With the cards, I'll picture. Okay, the thumbnails do this, 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 you know, and I break it down into piece by piece. In my hands, I'm at a dinner table. Let's see, we're out to dinner, and I'm watching. My hands are under the table, but because of my projecting the image, I will see exactly what's going on in slow motion. And of course, my images. We qualify this. I'm not seeing flesh and blood images. I will see the shape the shapes of it, but it's usually 
constructed from geometric images put, put together into the shape of the hand with cards and then even still around it are all the colors and other things floating around. But um, I will sit there and watch the move and yet there's a solid object between me and what I'm practicing. But the strange thing is, if I turn my head this way, can't do it. If I'm looking at my medicine cabinet, he's just an example. I'm okay, I'm okay, there's the okay, where's that damn chapstick? Well, there's Vaseline, there's this. I see every item in there, but the door's closed. Open the door, find what I want. Now, if I turn my head and I look at we'll go to know what's in there, it won't work. I have to be actually have to be physically looking at the object that I can't see. And uh um, so then when I'm looking away, I have to see it from here. What's in the memory? I'm going, okay, in the back with the toothpaste is there. So I'm seeing it in here, not visually in front of me. So that's why you can say I'm a certified oddball. Did I tell you that last time? That I'm a certified oddball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a certified oddball a, or a certified freak or a certified, as they said in Russia when they were interviewing me, doing the backstory, they said, you realize you're one of a kind in the world. What's it like being one of a kind? First of all, I want to jump into to the latest thing that you just explained about you having to physically look in the direction uh-huh. to see things in, the, in your mind's eye. Right. What's the explanation for that? Well, the, there was no explanation for it. Um, the, the neuroscientists have studied it and they, they're, they're now talking about how the brain is the, the um, elasticity of the brain and how the neural networks, anyway, they, there's just some things that are in the recent studies, I can't really uh, describe them off, offhand because they're, they're technical, but up until recently, there really wasn't any explanation for what is going on in my brain in the in the have in the few other dozen people who have this particular condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there, there's really not any explanation. The thing is, also, if I close my eyes, it's exactly the same. You put me, lock me in a vault, and the colors are not dull; they're vivid colors. They're extremely bright, like the cells on a movie theater overhead, in a, where they have the blues and the yellows that give the coloring for the actors. They're behind them, as a, as a, as a, as a red thing behind it is a light shining, making it a real vivid red. That's the way all these things are, uh, these uh, colors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like I said, it's the same, exact, exact same thing. If I close my eyes, but what's interesting is when I close my eyes, it's like putting on a pair of sunglasses. The, shit, the hues darken for about three seconds, then they equalize. Now, and this is one of the things Dr. Ogus was talking about. If I go when I go underwater, now my eyes are closed the whole time, uh, so I'm under, I'm I'm outside the water, and I'm going underwater. And even even as I'm hold, demonstrating this for you, I'm actually seeing the same thing. The hues just changed as I went underwater into a, and I put on sunglasses. And then a few seconds later, it equalizes back to what it was. 
And then when I come back out, the hues lighten up again. The, the, the level of, of intensity or the darkness uh, of, the, of the different colors. Like I said, just I see the same thing, but with putting on sunglasses, easiest way to, to just go, oh, I remember, open my eyes back up. Um, uh, but like I said, in, it doesn't matter what the uh, situation is. The, they said the, the, the neurons, whatever, are, are firing the brain, is responding the blood going to the retinas, even though there's no sight in the retinas because the brain is registering sight. And in fact, here I go again, uh, one of the things Dr. Ogre said is because of the fact that my, um, my optical, my brain, the, my brain is still resonating and still, um, uh, I still have sight. Like, and the best example is the fact that I see in my dreams totally clearly and that I see all this other stuff. He said, I'm a perfect candidate for a bionic eye. And would I consider that? And um, because, you know, you give it to somebody who has, uh, that's totally blind or and has, does not have that visual network still intact within the brain, it's, gonna, it's not going to do anything. And I thought about it. And I thought, hold it. If I do this, I'm going to lose all these other abilities that I have. And I told him, I said, doctor, to me, uh, this would be like taking and trading in an Enzo Ferrari for a Volkswagen bug. I said, why would I want to do that? And then he, he replied back, you know, if I was in your position, I probably would feel the same way. I wouldn't do it either. He said, if you take the part, this is his words, if you take the parts out of a Volkswagen bug and put them in a Ferrari, that car ain't going to go faster. And so um, I was afraid of losing my abilities that I've uh, grown so accustomed to over my life. And to lose that is not, a, is not a, I'd be trading, trading down, put it that way. And another thing, one of the tom most common things I didn't even mention that I do is I constantly write in the air. Say I want to remember a phone number. I can write the number down in the air. I'll see it floating in the air just like you'd see it on a computer screen. Mm -hmm. I have what they call it, a dead memory. Take a picture. Never forget it. Uh, uh, look things up and I'll see it come. Oh, there it is. Oh, uh, Doug Gorman's number and I'll, I'll rattle it off, whatever it is. Or I remember scripts and stuff, same, same type of things. I'm, you're constantly, if you're watching me close, you'll see my finger taking down notes. And that's, that's what I'm doing is, and then, uh, is uh, writing in the air and then taking pictures of those uh, images. Mm. Runchix, I asked you to grab a deck of cards. Did you find one? I have one. Okay, right uh, take out quickly a king, queen, and a jack and lay them in front of you. The king on the left, queen in the middle, Jack on the right. King, queen, jack. King, okay. on, now king take on the out left, a, queen in the middle, and jack on the right. Correct. Now take out uh, ace, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Call the ace of one. Yes. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. 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 Got it. Now, now I'm going to explain what I'm going to do. I There's a game called the Tower of Hanoi. Uh, that is a logic game that goes back a couple thousand, many, 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 many years. But the thing about the Tower of Hanoi is the formula is visible because you can see the progression of the discs getting larger. And the idea is to get them from one stack to the other without putting a larger disc on a smaller disc. 
When I was 11 years old, I created what I call Batty, B-A-T-T-Y, because this game drives you Batty. <laughs> and we're going to play it. And I, de- I devised it with cards because it varies the formula. But that's not why I'm having us do this. What I'm doing is I'm going to play this using my CBS, my ability to see in external space, while you're going to actually have the objects in front of you. And we'll see if your hands can keep up with you seeing the object with me not seeing the object as I tell you what to do. So first I'll explain the object of the game. First of all, we'll take the five and lay it face down on the jack. Face down on the jack. Done. Okay. Now the other other cards, one through four, I want you to mix them up. Best as you can, just scramble them in your hand. You have four cards that you're mixing, okay? Yeah. Now lay them face down on top of the five, which is on the jack. So on the jack right now is the five followed by four random cards, correct? Correct, yes. Okay, and then we have the king and the queen uh, uh, next to them. And we'll call the king A, the queen B, and the jack C, A, B, C for simplicity. All right. Now the object of this game is to get your cards from a mixed up state on C in order on the A, the, the king, five, four, three, two, one. And there's only one rule. You move between the three pads, the jack, queen, and queen, king, but you cannot put a high card on a low card. You cannot put a three on top of a one, but a one can go on top of a three, a two can go on top of a three, four cannot go on a one, and so on. Uh, so you cannot put a high card on a low card. So you are gonna see these cards and I'm going to tell you where to move them, and we'll see if you can keep up with me. I won't go too fast at first. All right. Um, and we're going to get them all in order, five, four, three, two, one on A. Okay, so turn over the first card and tell me what it is. All right, that's a three. On the A, next card, on the king, next card. Ace. I'll put it on the three, on the A, next card. Deuce. Okay, leave it where it is. Move the one to the queen. Put the two on the three, put the one on the two. So now on the king, you have three, two, one, yes? Correct, yes. Turn, turn over the four and put it on, on the queen. All right. With me? Yes. Put the one on the four. One on put the, the four. two on the jack. Put the one, one on the two. One put the three two. on the four. Put the one on the king. Put the two on the three. Put the one on the two. She, no. Now you should have four, three, two, one on the on the queen, yes? Yes. You keep up with it, move the five. Turn over the five, put it on the king. With me? Yep. Okay. Move the one to the jack, put the two on the five, put the one on the two, put the three on the jack, put the one in the middle, put the two on the three, put the one on the two, put the four on the five, put the one on the four, put the two in the middle, put the one on the two, put the three on the four, put the one on the jack, put the two on the three, put the one on the two. Done. Did you keep it? Good for you. But see, that's, I'm sitting there watching it in front of me, these cards. So I'm actually seeing it playing out. And I've actually played out a level that just to give you an idea. It starts at level three, which is six to seven moves mm-hmm. to resolve. Uh, and every time you add one card, it doubles plus one the minimum number of moves it'll take to resolve it. Like a level uh, 11 will take between 1,023 to 2,047 moves, depending on the random mixing of the cards. And I've actually done a level 15, which if it was the tower, it would be 15 this high. Mm-hmm. And the combinations are in the trillions times trillions, 15 to the 15 factorials. 
And, it, and the combinations are between 16,000 to 32,000 moves are the combination possibilities. And, uh, and on that particular one, it took me seven hours and five minutes to unscramble it. I'll never do it again. <laughs> wow, seven hours and, and five minutes. Seven hours and five minutes to unscramble it. Anyway, so but that was just a, that was just a physical example of using the mental uh, uh, brain and the and the ability to visualize for me in, a, in external space what you were doing, but I was seeing. Wow. That's a very useful exercise as well for what for the tricks that you're doing because we we discussed the last time when yes. you're dealing seconds when you're dealing from the middle of a deck you have to follow um, the position of the cards who you're dealing with and it has to be seamless you can't stop and think about it it has to happen right. mid deal yes and when I'm doing some of the things my as I think I mentioned the last time uh, one of the when I take uh, a deck of cards I'll have someone shuffle it up. And I'll say, how many players? Five. Where do you want to sit? Three. What hand do you want? Full house. And I'll start dealing it out and I'll let them take the cards out of my hand anytime they want, as many times as they want, hold cards back and just give me any part of the deck and I'll make the hand they just selected the winner and most of the time with the hand they wanted in that particular hand. And, uh, and But as you were saying, which is astute, is that my brain, as I'm dealing, I have, na- have microseconds to determine, engage, and then uh, and then deal. So that's uh, that um, that's a, a real uh, useful uh, a useful how how this visualization is useful. Put it that way. I was phrasing my sentence. Backwards. I'm very curious to try this one. On my own time, obviously, I'm not gonna <laughs> make you suffer through it. But I'm gonna. We can, we, can, we can do it together, and if you get lost, I'll tell you what to do. do um, no, no, no. I'll, I'll, um, I'll do it. Obsess about it, like you do, and then and I'm then, gonna report then, you about it. When you get, and start with a three, which three yeah. you can do in a matter of seconds, and then a four, and then five, and then once you get five down twice. Put the six in there. It's going to be twice as difficult. Put the seven yeah. in there. Now you're going to start getting going nuts. Eight yeah. is when it really starts frying your brain because yeah, you get you lost. For so me, games. it's going to be interesting to do it in my mind's eye. Oh, that's because how? Be how? Because like I, I'm not really worried about because as you were saying the things, I I can see the cards in front of me and I got the point of the game. So I was actually on point or had, uh, you know, because obviously you have to vocalize what I need to do. I already see mm. what I need to do. But right. for me for me to do it in my mind's eye, to make sure that I actually don't mess up, that I actually track the position of the cards, that's going to be an interesting... Because, uh, I mean, how can I check myself, right? But uh, it's going to be interesting exercise. I'm really curious to try. Richard, since, since you mentioned uh, the movie and the production, and we talked about it briefly, the first time we we had a conversation on the show, um, do you have any updates? How is it going? What's going on there? Yeah, well, um, when I did this guy from Singapore, his name is Patrick. Um, very, he's a fourth generation, very successful business family. Uh, as you call it, a privately owned offices, the way they phrase it. And he has investments all over the world. 
uh, venture capitalists and different things. And his latest one that was just went on the NASDAQ, no, it went on the Dow here in the United States two months ago mm-hmm. called F-U-B-O-T-V, Fubo TV. And what it is, is the Netflix, it's the sports version of Netflix. And uh, so it's like all in, and they have a contract with uh, out here where we have Disney and ABC was one of our networks. Uh, and then um, all, all uh, ESPN, which is a sports network and all the franchises, football, baseball, basketball, all different sports franchise franchises. So all those sporting games will be streamed live on Fubo TV and he, he was an initial investor and had started Then he bought another company out of Germany, expanded further. Then he merged together with Fubo. And then they, he took a live uh, ticket on the NASDAQ, opened at $10 a share two months ago. And then within a month, it was up to $27 a share. So if you would have put in 10000 that 10000 would be 27000 today. But anyway, that's what that what he does. Anyway, when I was doing his show, he said, "Richard, I hear they want to make it your life, your movie into a life. I want to be part of it." I said, "Are you serious?" Said, yes. If you do, you need money. If you need money, I can get money. Whatever you need. And I said, "Well, that's the that's always the initial thing is money." And so, um, and he wants to have what what's called a a list production. He wants an a list writer. And we have a number of writers on the that we have on our on our uh, docket or on our list, like the one that wrote Schindler's List and some others. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, an A-list writer is pricey in and of, it, of itself. And then, uh, but he wants A-list directors and uh, actors. And some of the people that they're suggesting play me in the film. One is Ryan Gosling. Another is uh, Jared Leto. He's a rock and roll star as well as an Oscar-winning actor. He's a method actor. He really becomes his part. He did one, we were themes of Wonder Words, they were, uh, about the gay, gay uh, guy that got AIDS. And he actually reduced his weight down to 111 pounds for that film. In another film he did, we played the guy that killed John Lennon. He put on 70 pounds. And then he becomes that person during the whole film. And so he's a method actor, Stanislavski, uh, theory of acting. Another one is Matthew McConaughey, who he and I live 50 minutes apart from each other. And uh, who I think is, a, I, I just like him. I like his films, they're fun. And, uh, and another one is uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. That's one of the ones that um, uh, one of our guys would like to play the part. Um, if I had my druthers, I kind of like Matthew McConaughey because he's a Texan. And uh, and then Di Vernon, my card teacher, said something similar. He said, Rich, if you can do anything better than everyone else in the world, people will try to break down your doors to meet you. They'll do anything to meet you. So I said all that to say that talent trumps wealth. Talent trumps wealth. Skill trumps wealth. Um, so, but another way, Steve Jobs always wanted, he wanted Bob Dylan to sing at his first, first wedding. Here's a guy, wealthy as all get out, can't, like, can't get Bob Dylan to come. <laughs> and then he did end up playing at his third wedding, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, another way, Tiger Woods, 
uh, he has talent. He'll be on the golf course with uh, uh, the president of the United States, uh, Bill Gates, some of the most wealthiest people in the world want this wants this want this uh, golfer to come be with them. And, and in my case, it's the same thing. And there are these people that are wealthy beyond my imagination and have power, and they're treating me like, oh, they're so honored to be in my presence. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, if you all knew, I'm just a little guy with a deck of cards, but I just happen to be able to do things that others can't. And because of that, I'm, I'm, I've had unusual, amazing privileges. Like I said, I told you about going to Russia and being escorted in by the deputy prime minister of the country to uh, entertain people. Like one time I was performing, I actually was performing for, in front of me was Johnny Carson, to my left was Gene, uh, Gene Kelly, to my right was Gregory Peck. And Gene Kelly says, Johnny, how's he doing this stuff? You understand, understand this stuff, Johnny? And Johnny goes, I have no idea, but he sure does it beautifully. And Gregory Peck says, I know who my next partner partner's gonna be. You're gonna come over and play cards for me. And be my uh, dealer and so on. Anyway, but and then probably the my favorite is I've uh, I can say that I've been kidnapped and hugged by the three-time boxing heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali. I was a big fan of Ali because I was a fighter. And Ali, I I grew up watching all his fights and and when I was fighting, he was fighting, but he was getting millions. I was getting hit. <laughs> and uh, uh, I won a championship in Las Vegas hosted by Siegfried and Roy, who was at the time the number one act in all of Las Vegas and had been for years. It was 1982. And uh, Ali was there to watch this competition to see who was the best card man and, and, and close-up performer in the world. And, and it was voted on the same way as the Olympics. And I had all tens. So I obviously won. <laughs> and um, so I got what's called the Golden Lion Award from Siegfried and Roy. And I won the competition with Siegfried and Roy. A guy named Dennis Marks, who was uh, uh, president of a big uh, company, uh, entertainment company. He said, uh, this guy wants to meet you. And I said, who? He said, come follow me. Anyway, I get into this big suite presidential suite in the middle of the commotion is the three-time boxing heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali. And we started seeing shows together and, and we're time where he said, let's go leave the girls behind. I'm going to take you to a, a theater show. And uh, so we're at the theater. We're in the, you got us front row seats, right to the left of, left of center stage. And back then, like I said, I see the corner of my eye and, um, and I always sitting to my right stages that way. And I would, uh, now that I'd catch his eyes, and of course it was reflected off the lights on the stage, and it looked like he wanted to kill me. And I'm only 18 inches or so away from his eyes, and I'm looking at him, and he'd catch me, catching him looking at me, and he'd turn away. Then I'd catch him staring at me again, and I'd look at him, and he looked like he wanted to kill me. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, Ali, we're friends. Why are you looking at me like you want to kill me? And finally goes, that's a good looking mustache. All that time he wanted to kill me, I thought he wanted to kill me. I, I have this big handle on my mustache. He was admiring my mustache. And I thought, if he looks like he wants to kill you when he's admiring you, what does he look like when he really does want to kill you? And I thought, that's a scary thought. 
another time, one of the tricks he liked to do on, on you, play on me anyway, is he, his hands were so bad, he'd snap his half fingers behind your head. I'd, I'd turn and look like, you know, it's only me and his two bodyguards, as if he needed bodyguards. I mean, he was bigger than both of his bodyguards. Anyway, so I'd snap here, the snap, I'd turn around, and he just got a big kick out of doing that. And then he did this trick for me, which was funny as I got. He had this uh, wand, like a, a magic wand, mm-hmm. and he had it, and he had to hold it in the air. And usually, and here's the wand, here's his hand. And usually you put your hand between the hand and the object, right? To show there's mm-hmm. no strings. Yeah. Here's the wand. He put his hand below it. He goes, look, no strings. So there could have been a thousand strings because he didn't put his hand between the, the object and his hand. He put it underneath the object. Uh, and this one had to be a little politically correct because to say it the way it was stated or what actually happened, you can't even say these words now. So I'll, I'll suffer, substitute them. Uh, so Ollie, he, all he wants to see is me. He said, do that again. He said, how is it that I shuffle and I, you can make me win every time? Well, you win. How do you do that? Do that again. Do that again. Over and over and over. And there were about a half a dozen world-renowned magicians in there with us in a suite. And one of them was named Slidini. You can Google him. Very famous uh, magician. And uh, so now Ali finished watching me and his wife, Veronica, said, Ali, come have your soup. And I'm pretty, pretty sure it was Veronica at the time. Anyway, so he goes to eat. He sits like this. Head down, slurping soup. And Slidini is 90 degrees right to his right at the table with six coins lying out, going to show him what he's known for. Very famous magician. Mm-hmm. And he could. Ali says, you want to watch. Slidini had, a, I think it was from, I can't remember what country, but yeah, very strong accent. And he's, you watch, I show you what I do. And Ollie <laughs> wouldn't budge from slipping his soup. And then he says, you want to slip soup or do you want to watch? And uh, and then this other guy named uh, uh, John, 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 uh, okay, whatever his name, John, uh, somebody named John. He goes, if Ollie wants to slip soup, if he wants to eat his soup, he can eat soup. After all, he's bigger. Ollie jumped from his chair and said, did you call me a N-word? Big, rhymes with bigger. And, he, and of course, John Cornelius, John Cornelius, John Cornelius goes, no, no, I didn't say you're uh, this. I said you're bigger. I said, Ollie's bigger. I says, I thought you called me a rhymes with bigger. And uh, he slowly sat down and later he goes, tells me I'm just footing with him. So he scared the piss out of that guy just because he's had a word that rhymed with bigger and uh, he did it on purpose. And, and, uh, and he told me, he, he told me, I'm just, I'm just fun with him. And of course the, 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 he, no one else knew it. Everyone else was trying to avoid him. And, uh, and I thought it was just so funny. And I find out whenever uh, that word, a rhyme, word, a rhyme word rhymed with that other word, N word, he would do that to the person just to, just to, Give him a hard time to have the heavyweight champ coming after you. Anyway, so now, a year later, I'm in a casino and four big African-American men come up to me and they go, Richard Turner, you're coming with us. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't think so. Anyway, they push two in the front, 
two behind me, and I'm like a, a dice, the five spots on a dice on the center spot with two in the front, two in the back. Pushed me out the back of the out of the back of the casino. Didn't go through the doors. Went out the back through these doors. They stuffed me in a limousine. Limousine zips away, zip, 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 zip. And the, you know, the, behind, they didn't go out on the main street. They are just going behind. They pulled up behind another casino, two in the front, get out. They pull me out, and the other two being fine behind me. And we go through the back end of this other casino, down these passages of hallways into this big suite where Ollie is there waiting for me. He runs up, throws his arms around me, and a big bear hug goes, Richard, how you doing? So good to see you again. So I heard now you can find cards under impossible conditions. Can you show me? So Ollie had me kidnapped because he heard I could do something and he wanted to see it. So that's why I've been kidnapped and hugged by the three-time boxing heavyweight champion of the world. So anyway, he was just a wonderful, wonderful man. And one of the kindest hearts you'll ever meet or ever would have had the, if, if you ever met him, you would see that. And side of the ring, he was amazing. Wow, that's such a beautiful story. Yeah, Before you told that, when you mentioned all the names, and I, I was wondering, I wonder who of the celebrities that you've met impressed you the most? And I answered it. And you answered it before I asked the question. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's incredible. That's an incredible story. Richard, I also wanted to ask you about the role of mentors in your life, because obviously, you know, starting with, I suppose, your sensei Murphy, Di Vernon, the acting. Um, Steve Terrell and uh, Gene Fisher. I have four main ones I call them my four mentors, my four angels, my four, uh, any way you want to phrase it. And the first one to start off with was Sensei Murphy. He laid the foundation for me to believe I could do anything. Two years later, I met my first director. Steve Terrell, T-E-R-R-E-L-L. He, he was starred in many movies back in the 50s and early 60s, number of television series that he was in. And he, Joe, he died in almost every Western made, being the bad guy that comes into town and Lucas McCain, the rifleman, he draws on him, he gets shot or whatever. He died just about every Western made as long as, as well as heaven. He was the, played the oldest son in uh, Life of Father and, uh, anyway, all kinds of uh, television shows, uh, drag strip girls starring Steve Terrell. And so anyway, Steve was my other one. He's the one that uh, taught me how to play the part of a side person and also would tell me that if you become the best, people listen to what you have to say. And then after that, then that was 18. And at the same time, Murphy was telling me to put meat on your bones. So there was a champion, I, I, uh, Jim got ran by a guy named Gene Fisher, who held the world's record in curl in the curl in 1963. Uh, curled uh, unrecorded 220, uh, recorded 221 pounds and unrecorded 226 pounds in his weight category, which is in the 200 pound weight category. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, uh, he was only right up the street from me. So I, uh, at that time, it was $9 a month for the thing, for the, Gym, gym training, or the gym, go to access to a gym. And the karate back then, Murphy gave me the Mexican rate, which was $6 a month. The American rate was $9 a month. Just to give you an idea of prices back then versus how they are now. Mm. So um, 
and Gene Fisher, uh, I wanted him to personally train me. And he would, you know, he just, he wouldn't do it. He didn't have time. And I said, Gene, come on, train me. And, uh, you know, and I was getting stronger and stronger. Uh, and I was always looking for anything to make a few extra dollars. I was a starving artist. And my, most of my money came from playing cards. And at that time, it, they were not big games by any means. They were small games. And uh, so I, uh, I said, Gene, hire me on. He says, no, with your site situation, it's just, it's too dangerous. I, I just don't want to, I'm afraid you're going to get, you might get hurt. Construction works dangerous. I said, come on, Gene, I promise. Uh, and I'll do it for free. You don't even have to pay me. And I said, oh, you just buy me enough food to fill me up. That's not a big deal. I, I, I harassed him. I said, okay, you're hired on. And he gave me one of the most, one of the most, with the jobs that took a lot of energy. That was the, when the cement was laid out. You're the one that chomping down that cement and uh, you know, the concrete as it's being poured. And there was a big foundation. And then and then Gene took all his people out to dinner and he he said, here's your money. I said, no, I, I, no. I said, uh, oh no, I back, I said, just fill me up and train me if I, uh, just give me some training. Anyway, so now dinner, he wants to pay me. I said, no, that wasn't the deal. Uh, I said, you just give me enough food to fill me up and train me. And uh, so I wouldn't take his money. And But then he was shocked at how much I ate. I said, but the deal was you have to fill me up. And I ordered three complete Mexican meals. I mean, with you know, three complete dinners, ate every chop. And he goes, you can eat like that and you don't get fat? I'll train you. And uh, just to give you an idea how much um, I eat. Uh, Diego, my fourth round of my test, he actually, it's in my book that I'm working on. He writes, yeah, back in 72, uh, Murph, Murphy took us out to dinner and and uh, most people eat three or four tacos, but not Mr. Turner. No, he had to go all the way and eat 18 tacos. That's right, 18 tacos. And I had a, a Casa Bonita in Denver, Colorado. I was there on tour with Lance Players, the theater company I was with, Steve Terrell. And uh, the weekday opened, which was all-you-can-eat Mexican restaurant. It's the largest Mexican restaurant in the world, and still is, as far as I know. Seats 1,100 people. And um, uh, I, it was, uh, back then, it was uh, the daytime meals, $1.89 for all-you-can-eat at night. It was three forty-nine for all-you-can-eat. I had five enchiladas, five tamales, beans, rice, guacamole, chips, dip, five Pepsis, five glasses of water, and 16 tacos. One meal. And the, every time you raise this little flag, would you want more? And But within about every 90 seconds, I'd raise the flag, three more tacos, please, three more tacos. And she kind of hiding them. So they start looking under the table. Like I'm, I'm, I'm stealing, going to steal from the restaurant by storing away and taking them with me. And they look, he's eating those darn things. And then afterwards I said, hit me. I hit myself in the stomach, showing that it was all tucked away. But I don't know how I got off on that tangent or what the relevance was, but there's another story for you. Story for you. Oh, the that, that mentors. So that was Gene Fisher, how I got him to train me. And he trained me for seven years. And uh, he got me to where, like, when I do, like, do pull-downs, um, I would I weighed 135 at this time, and I could pull down 230, which is over 100 pounds more than I weighed. So he'd have to pull the bar down, had a T on the bottom. I'd lock my knees underneath that T. I'd do my reps. They'd have to lift me back up. 
And uh, I could reverse curl 165 pounds, and I could curl 165 pounds. Once again, I weighed 135, between 135 to 140 at that during that time period. So I was curling, you know, a percentage more than I weighed. And that's where I'd go in, if, even at that time, and I'd say, hey, you might have to get a few warm-ups. And I'd take the, the wheel, two wheels on there and the bar, which was the, what they break it down to 135 pounds. That's stand up over it and just start ripping off reps in there. A little guy, strong little guy. Anyway, um, so he was my third and my fourth, of course, was Guy Vernon. Um, met him in uh, 1975. I was worked with Bobby Yerkes on a Circus of the Stars. I lived with him because Steve Terrell set me up there. With, when I was with the theater company, the Lambs Players, he sent me up there to um, uh, because Bobby was going to donate one of the rope ladders to the Lambs Players, our theater company when we perform at Renaissance fairs, because you make a lot of money off those things, they have to try to climb this ladder. The ladder is, is a single cable, has a parachute swivel, and then it goes up at a V, and then the first run goes all the way up, and then it comes back to a uh, single point, to a thing with another parachute swivel. So if you, as soon as you touch it, it just flips over on you. And it was a real trick to, not, it wasn't a trick, what the secret was, I said, what's the secret? When I went up with Bob, secret is a practice. What's the secret to walk on a tightrope? Practice. And so I actually created all the gymnastics on that thing. I climb it up, I climb down. I learned to climb up, flip around, come down backwards. I learned to climb up backwards and come down backwards. And I actually learned one right one, went up feet first, climbed up feet first, and ring the bell with my finger and my toes, and then come back down. And um, so, um, uh, so anyway, I was uh, I was working with Bob Yerkes on the uh, Circus of the Stars and Wonder Woman. There's a TV series called Wonder Woman, starring Linda Carter, and uh, and uh, we would train this. Do this he was the stunt coordinator for that series, and uh, um, so I'd work with him as we would train the different act, the, the stunt doubles for Linda or whoever it was that was doing the, the stunts for that particular episode. And uh, I became 20. Well, I turned 21 that year, and a guy named John. John uh, Wagner said, uh, Vernon heard that you can do some middles and seconds and he, he's willing to meet with you. And this is what I've been waiting for, was to meet Professor Vernon. He was the most big, he's the single most influential person in the past hundred years in magic for a hundred years. He was the single most important person. He was the teacher of some of the greatest people that came out. Doug Kenny learned under, he got a grant from the Canada to learn under Doug Vernon. Uh, all the way back to uh, Sandy Marshall, Jay Marshall, who was, uh, he opened for uh, Elvis, uh, for uh, Frank Sinatra. And anyway, all, all, all throughout the 20th century, Vernon was the one that was the key person. And, uh, and because I, I, I was as nutty as he was, I became the recipient of that knowledge. And with Vernon, what was interesting about him is he would only sh- as a teacher, he would only teach you up to your level. Let me put it in, let me define that. Now, say you're doing a double lift, which is a move from magicians. And a person does it in, in this one way, person would say, that's not, but he'd show you a dozen other ways that are better. But then you say, can you show me, will you show me your second deal? If you couldn't do that second deal, wouldn't show you. He only, he only worked with you up to what you could do. He did not give stuff away. And, uh, uh, but yeah, but he, uh, he was, uh, 
a lot of people got their start uh, from Vernon. And he was known as the man Fool Houdini. That took place 100 years ago. It was in Chicago. And Vernon Houdini had a boast that if he saw anything three times, he could figure out how it was done. And so Vernon had this card trick they would do, and he did it to Houdini five times. Finally, his wife says, admit it, Harry, he's fooled you. And Houdini didn't want to admit it, but he fooled him. And uh, so to meet him was a big deal. And I found out, okay, writer says, okay, I'm going to meet, we're going to meet at the Magic Castle. And, and then he calls out, and calls me the night before, says, oh, by the way, to get into the castle, you have to have a suit. And I said, a suit? I mean, I said, coat and tie? Yep, no getting into the castle without a suit. And you have to have ID showing 21, and there's oh, no, you have to have a coat and tie. I thought, dang, I don't have a coat and tie. I couldn't afford a coat and tie. I didn't wear a coat and tie. I didn't like coat and tie. But I had to have a coat and tie. So I went, I had to check my pocket. I had some 20s from some, you know, gambling that I'd done. And then plus, you know, my, my, my money working for Bobby. And uh, so I go down to Northridge Shopping Center, set my clothes on a coat rack, and I start thumbing through coats. And this guy comes up to me, the sales guy says, I'll cut you a high card for that coat. I thought to myself, this is my lucky day. I said, okay. He goes, no, no, I'm just kidding. I said, tell you what, let's go, go come over to your checkout counter. And I move the stuff out of the way. I said, I have three cards here. I have two twos and a queen. Look, I'm just going to move around. See that queen? See that queen? You follow that queen? You follow it? You follow it, okay? So I tell you what, I'll move these around. If you tell me where that queen is, I'll pay double for the coat. If you miss it, you give me the coat for free, but you'll get double. Think about that. That's way more you make in the commission, right? And he goes, really? I said, really? I'll do that. So I threw it. Darn if he didn't miss it. I said, I'll tell you what, give you a chance to win your coat back. I bet the coat against a pair of pants. He said, okay. So I throw Darn if he didn't miss it again. Now he's getting worried. Because I was I, I don't know if he was gonna be stealing it or if it's gonna come out of his own pocket or how he was gonna cover this. I said, tell you what, I'll give you a chance to get your coat and pants back. But your coat and pants gets a shirt and tie. Okay, but this is the last one. He lost it again. So I walked out of there with a brand new suit, didn't pay a dime. And uh, went in and uh, that's when I first met Professor Vernon, met the library at the Magic Castle, and uh, uh, there was another guy uh, that was there named Tony Giorgio. There's a movie called The Godfather, a classic movie, whether considered one of the top 10 movies of all times. And Tony Giorgio played Bruna, Bruna Tattaglia in the film, which was Vino Corleone's toughest henchman. There's a famous scene in that movie where there's an actor stabbing a knife, pinning a guy's hand to the bar top. The actor is Tony Giorgio. And so in the library is Vernon, and at this other table is Tony Giorgio, who, as I would say for years, he didn't act in the movie. He just played himself a mean, nasty mafia man. And so every time I'd do something for Vernon, Giorgio would pipe in, won't get the money, won't get the money. I'd do something else, won't get the money. Every, every time we were just, you know, we, we, we weren't even there to see him. And of course, even Vernon says, I don't care how find the brief is when you deal like that, I know you're up to something. And so Vernon wasn't any, really any more impressed than Giorgio. But mm -hmm. Vernon says, now hold your hands still. He held my hands. Now do it. Now that's better. Now that's better. 
And so I remember what he said about his unnatural looking. And I don't want to get up, go off on more tangents, but that kind of laid the foundation for me to realize you've got to be natural in what you do. But the bottom line is Vernon took a liking to me for whatever reason. And I got to spend 17 years with him and I became the recipient of a century worth of his most guarded card table information. And that's the most closely guarded of all sleight of hand, all forms of gambling sleight of hand is the gambling work because that's where real money is made at the table, not performing shows. So the stuff of the shows, magicians are real open about it, but the table stuff, that was the, that was the secret of all secrets. And so I became the recipient of it, like I said, a century worth of his most guarded card table secrets because he spent his life seeking out gamblers and hustlers around the country and around the world to learn their moves. And then he was spend his life developing. The, then he would start telling me things about some guy he met in 1919, Dad Stevens, dealt this uh, second deal in this particular way. And so I, and he never was able to accomplish it. And I would take that concept, what he told me, and then six months later, that's it. That's better than Stevens. And, and so he, anyway, he became my, uh, my other mentor. So I've had uh, four people that kind of built what I become and I became. And I tell them, I, when I was with Murphy, I let them know, I said, I think I would not be where I am without, if it wasn't for you. And, uh, and he's like the second father to me. And I tell Steve Terrell the same thing. I said, you, you don't like to hear it, but I would not be where I am today without you taking time with this punk little kid that couldn't see the actor in front of him. And, and of course, Gene Fisher has passed on, and Professor Vernon has passed on, but <coughs> Professor Vernon still, you know, I was already you know, very well known world internationally when Vernon passed on. You know, he kind of spread the world around the world, read news around the world about this guy named Turner. And, um, but anyway, those are my mentors, and I was very blessed and very fortunate to have them, and, uh, and they laid the foundation for me to have become whatever you want to call call me. Most people call me crazy. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the description. And of course, I'd highly appreciate if you subscribe, click like, spread the word about the podcast. Also, if you'd like to receive a regular newsletter with my key takeaways about each episode, go ahead and subscribe to it on runchexpodcast.com. That's R-U-N-C-H-U-K-S podcast.com. I write those myself. I take it seriously and I really enjoy the interaction with the readers. So I hope you'll sign up uh, and I'll be back for you next time. Thank you.